As one of our most prolific living writers, Stephen King has been weaving the webs of our nightmares into terrifying tapestries for nearly 50 years. A blue-collar craftsman, King has toiled in several mediums from novels and short stories to film, television, and comic books. But what is the true essence of a Stephen King story? What makes his yarns so haunting and enduring? And what unique qualities does he bring to storytelling? Join the Bonsai Boys, Jay and Travis, as they explore the work of King in this four-part series. Stephen King. Okay, Jay, uh, question of the week. Uh, if, if you could be the son of a famous artist, who would you want, whose who's seed, whose prodigy would you want to be? Talk this out with me. If you hmm. say that's tough, I'm going to come across this and, okay. That's how, that's how, y'all hear. Well, that's tough, that's tough. <laughs> Do I say that a lot? <laughs> um, so <clears throat> the way I'm going to, uh, uh, I'm just going to throw the first name that came out there and I'll, I'll tell you why. So as you were asking this, the first name that popped into my head was David Bowie's. Oh. <clears throat> and the reason I think is because A, he's eccentric as fuck. He seems like a very kindly person just with interviews he seems like a stand-up dude he seems like he doesn't seem like a flaky dad like Mm -hmm. like if you had keith richards or like you know somebody like that as a dad it would suck he probably doesn't give a shit about you right right you know and so i feel like david bowie might actually be like a cool dad or would have been i'm gonna come in i'm gonna come in here with this david bowie is kind of an asshole from what I've read, because what really? I you, See, remember, I remember when I remember when I went on that big David Bowie kick, uh-huh. you know, last year, uh, we even did a whole glam rock set, uh, and there's a lot of people who are like David Bowie was good to you when you were working with him, when 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 he you could when you could give him something, but as soon as that was done, as soon as you gave him what you, what he needed, it was like that switches off. Well, you know what, I, I'm I'm that way too. Like, if we ever end this podcast, you're dead to me, Travis. Well, I noticed how, like, in between podcasts, like, you're really rude. <laughs> I can't, I just can't squeeze any more energy out of you. <laughs> no, Bowie's a good one. I didn't even think about that. Bowie would be a solid one. Here's a couple of things that are great about Bowie. You're going to have uh, amazing musicians hanging around the house. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're going to have a wardrobe full of all eccentric costumes. You can cosplay uh, till the end of days, you can cosplay the movie End of Days with Arnold Schwarzenegger because I'm sure he's got like a End of Days outfit somewhere in his closet. Yeah, you can yeah. you can put on Klaus Nomi's old outfit. Yeah, exactly, you know? exactly. <laughs> yeah. What about you? Who would you be? I think I'm gonna do a musician as well. Um, at first, I was like, here's my thing. I don't want someone. At first, my instinct was I don't want to pick someone too talented because that's too overshadowing. Okay. Mm-hmm. I also don't want someone too too famous because I feel like that would ruin my childhood. 
Like, I think Stephen King is okay because people know Stephen King, but they don't recognize Stephen King, per se. Yeah. You know? Um, but then I was like, ah, fuck it. I want, like, a cool musician, right? It's kind of like the, the high-fidelity thing. Um, uh, I want to... I want to marry a musician. Man, I want to date a musician. <laughs> I'm gonna, so mine, I'm going to go with Tom Waits. Mm. Tom Waits. Big fan of this whole catalog. I think he's got real dad energy, like dad humor. Like he tells those kind of old-timey jokes. Uh-huh. You, can, you could bang on anything in the house growing up, and he's going to love it. You cannot be too noisy in Tom, Tom Waits' house. It's interesting. Does he have any kids? Like, I don't know. Yeah, I've hey, never Siri, read that. Does Tom Wait have any kids? Oh, this patient's killing Here's me. What I found. Tom, not Tom White. All right, Siri's out of it. I'm gonna say I, I have not, I have never heard him talk about his kid. Oh, I think he does have kids. I, th- does I feel he? like I've seen an interview where they were like, um, "What's it like being a dad?" Um, Tom Waits, kids. He's going to have one now, because I'm going to have him adopt me. Yeah, he's got uh, Sullivan Waits, Cassie Waits, Kels... Kelsimon Waits. Hmm. Kielbasa. Kielbasa Waits. Kielbasa Waits for no man. <laughs> Welcome to the Pop Bonsai Podcast. Bonsai! Gotta, you gotta start it on that kielbasa line, Jay. <laughs> All right. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Pop Bonsai Podcast, where myself, Travis, and my a bonsai partner in crime, Jay, make up the bonsai boys. That's what I've officially dubbed us in our show notes. The bonsai boys. Okay. We the bonsai okay. boys. The boys. After the t- the boys. <laughs> <laughs> After we do this podcast, we go and uh, solve uh, small town crimes. Small town crimes on the bonsai boys. Uh, flattening the curves, driving the hills. Someday pop culture might get them, but a book never will. That was a bad one. We're working on it. We're working on it. Who do you think? Okay, there's Duke, and then there's who's the other? Bo. Bo. Who's who's Bo Duke and, and who's Bo in this in this podcast scenario? Hmm. I think you're Luke. I think you're more like Luke. Luke, I don't know from the original show which one is which. I know which one is which from the remake with uh, Stifler and Johnny Knoxville. John Knoxville? <laughs> uh, is, is Stifler Luke? I'm trying. Uh, He's a blonde one. Bo is Stifler, I believe. I'm 75% sure that Bo oh. is Stifler. Because I, I, can, oh. I, can, I can picture John, Johnny Knoxville saying, Bo? I can't picture okay. him saying Luke. Okay, okay. Yeah, so we got I gotta stop looking up stuff. I gotta stop looking up stuff. <laughs> we got that sorted out. Thank goodness. Now we can get into our third episode of our Stephen King set, Jay. Mm-hmm. What are we mm-hmm. talking about on our third? <coughs> Count uh, one, two, three. Yep. <laughs> uh, we are talking about uh, Joe Hill's uh, limited series called Basket Full of Heads that uh, uh, came out on his own uh, little label 
from DC Comics called Hill House and uh, came out in, I believe, 2019-ish. Mm-hmm. Um, I love Travis. how I love how comic book artists now have like their own labels, like a like an indie band press. It's really cool. I know, I know. Hill House and uh, James Tinian has Tiny Onion, and uh, what's Kirkman has? It was this Kirkman has like Skybound. Is that mm-hmm. his? I think it's Sky something. Yeah. yeah. Um. Yeah. I I want to own my own label of something. Now it could be a music label. It can be a comic book label. I I, I just I just awesome. want to have a label. Like oh, what's that poster of? Oh, that's my label. Yeah, that's cool. And what about what's that's that? What's crazy. that over there on the counter? That's my label maker. <laughs> Where do you think the label comes from? The maker. What a fucking idiot. Cool yeah. jacket. Yeah, you like the labels. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, having a label would just give you like some kind of like a like street cred. Yeah, know? that or a zine. Zines yeah. are good. You had a zine at one point, right? Eh, kind of. It was mm-hmm. a, like a blog, but it's not the same. It's like a like a Kinko's. It's got to be Kinko. Three a.m. Mm-hmm. You know, pay, cutting and pasting. Two colors. Zine. Two colors. Yeah. 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 So yeah, we're, we're so we're we're and this one you're like, wait a minute, wait a wait a minute now, bonsai boys. You said you're doing a Stephen King set, and Joe Hill is, uh, that's not, that name isn't Stephen King. Oh, contraire, my friend. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It is. His original name was Joseph King. His pen name is Joe Hill, because, of course, we're talking about Stephen King's son, Joe Hill. And we mm-hmm. wanted to mix it up in the Stephen King set. We wanted to look at a disciple of Hill, right? I was a disciple of Hill, a disciple of King. Um, because, you know, King is a, a best-selling novelist, and anytime you're the best-selling of anything, you are going to spawn devotees. You are going to spawn uh, a, a style. You're going to spawn, it's pejorative, but copycats. Uh, mm-hmm. So let's go to the source. Let, let, let's take a look at not only someone who is writing in Stephen King's style and storytelling in Stephen King's style, but also grew up in the man's house. Yeah, and who looks a lot like his father. Yep. The, I older, mean, the older he gets to, the the more he looks. It's uncanny. I mean, I seeing a picture of Joe Hill now looks like seeing a picture of Stephen King in like you know nineteen eighty four. Yeah, it's it's same haircut. The yeah, beard, same dorky ass haircut. Yeah, yeah. yeah same like disheveled author haircut. You know. So what yeah, is your yeah, what cool. is your um, experience with uh, Joe Hill? Have you read or uh, or consumed any uh, stories by uh, Joe Hill before? Yeah, I I've read uh, a Heart Shaped Box, his his ghost story, uh, well like horror story. I've I've read Lock and Key, um, and that, that's pretty much about it. Okay. I've great admiration for both of those though. Yeah, and this. I read uh, Horns. I read mm. Nosferatu. Uh, I read Lock and Key. Absolutely love that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I read this. Um, and I think that might be it. So, uh, again, he's got quite a bit out there. Obviously not as much as his father. Uh, but, um, so we're by no means experts on Joe Hill. But we've we've probably consumed 
enough to uh, understand his his vibe and tone a little bit. Uh, and this basket full of heads, uh, I think, is if you're going to dip your toes and if you're going to climb this hill, this Joe Hill, I think your <laughs> like first this is a great first step. Basket full of heads. Yeah, uh, I, it, I think it it. it I think it is further in his enough in his career where he's kind of uh, rounded out some of those rough edges in his use of language that, you know, kind of made books like Horns uh, maybe um, not sing as much in his prose style as some of his later work. Uh, And I think this is a, a great entry entree into the world of Joe Hill and a good, um, uh, sidecar for uh king mm-hmm. for sure for sure um so what just briefly uh did you like horns and uh and nosferatu because honestly nosferatu I'm, I'm about to read no nosferatu is uh horns was my the first one i read and um it was okay like, I don't recommend Horns to people uh, as a no. first Joe Hill thing. I would say read Lock and Key. Uh, Nosferatu is really good. Nosferatu has some real Stephen King vibes. Has oh, some real good. Stephen King vibes. And genuinely creepy. Like the guy drives a Wraith, and it's like, it's, it's crazy. It's, it's, it's a good one. It feels, it feels like 80s horror. Uh it's Perfect. got some. It's got some. It, it's got some it vibes. Some really strong it vibes to it. Uh, so I think you're going to enjoy that one. I won't get too far into it because I don't want to spoil anything. Because there's some cool twists in there and, and things like that. It's also got some. Um, uh, uh, the Shining vibes. The book, The Shining, not the movie, The Shining. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So nice. So, oh, man, I'm looking forward to that now. Yeah. So, uh, well, 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 let me let me kind of lay down the plot here um, of this story, and then we're going to kind of freestyle. We're going to talk a little bit about Joe Hill, what he's doing in here, what's similar to King, where he differs, and uh, what is what is the essential Stephen King of Joe Hill. Uh, so this uh, story takes place. Oh gosh! As I, you ever start doing a summary, and then you're like, you're going to start with like a place and time, and then you're like, wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so you jump in with corrections as needed. So this okay. story takes place in the 1980s. It's in a small uh, island town called Brody, Maine, this, which gives away a lot of Jaws vibes in, in like how he says this. Brody, island, attack. I don't know, maybe, maybe I'm reaching. Um, of course, we have that, yeah. that, that main story there. Um, and... We follow uh, this female protagonist who has now, I'm like, oh my God, she's the main protagonist. Wait, I can't remember her name. June. June. Um, as she's visiting her boyfriend who works as a summer cop on the island of Brody, Maine. Um, and uh, she's very much in love with her boyfriend. Her boyfriend is, we meet him on his last day of the job for the summer. And uh, uh, there is a, a crime. Um, you know, prisoners uh, have escaped. Um, so, uh, the local, uh, town sheriff sends, uh, June and her boyfriend to his house, uh, to kind of inform his wife that, you know, they'll be late for dinner, he'll be late for dinner, and to kind of, you know, watch over them. 
mm-hmm. we get a tour of this house. And on this tour of this house, we realize that the town sheriff has a, an odd collection. He has a collection of Norse memorabilia. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in this collection, there is this axe, this very old Nordic axe, and which comes into play here in a little bit. So as the night unfolds, the quote-unquote uh, escape cons come in to the house, and they attack June. June is able to fend off one of the attackers by chopping off his head with this Norse axe. Now, the rest of the evening, June is on a tailspin trying to solve where her boyfriend is. Meanwhile, she keeps chopping off these heads. And here's the rub. When she chops off someone's head, when she kills someone with this axe, they die, but they are zombified. So as she chops off a head, the head is still alive. If she were to uh, uh, chop you in the arm, the arm would be off, but your body would still be alive. So you are the person is dead, but they are reanimated. So she carries along this basket full of heads of all these dark, sinister characters who help her unravel the mystery of where her boyfriend is, what's happened to him, why it's happened to him, until we get to our ultimate climax, where June must face off against the town villains, her boyfriend, and ultimately her own destiny. Mm. That's the, that's the sweet. Yeah, that was well done. Um, Yeah. And, and and one of the, the, first of all, this, this, this book is, is just, it's so fun. You know, you know, you mentioned it was, it was set in the eighties. So this is pre, you know, cell phone, pre a lot of, you know, uh, ring doorbell cams. Um, so what I'm trying to say is, is, is it was still, there's still a lot of fun, a lot of more play you can do with, with stories like this. Um, and I just love how she's traveling through the small town and the more she travels through it, the more uh, sinister plot she uncovers um, each you know characters that she thought were her friends are not and for, for various reasons and the, the there's comedy throughout this whole uh, book you know with the heads talk and, and they argue and and like one of the funniest parts is you know when when she chops off the, like the first guy's head and he sit there <laughs> he'll sit there and go Oh, I know you're a good person, June, and you wouldn't leave me stranded out here to drown. And then, like, you know, two pounds later, he's like, you know, "Listen, that you, bitch, you whore, you yeah, whore, yeah, you yeah, bitch. Yeah. I hate you." Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's so great. Uh, so, a couple of things in there that, that that struck it. One, it is there's a lot of humor in this book. It feels like a very '80s B movie, like a, a horror comedy. It is a horror yeah. comedy, and. Yeah. I think that is something that he has in common with his father, with, with King, is that they're not afraid to bring that light and dark together, to juxtapose something very gory and very terrifying with something very... I would say both their humor is crass. Oh, yeah. King and, King and Hill uh, both have very crass humor. Like, they like bathroom jokes. They like dick jokes. Uh, you know, they like naughty language uh, and uh, grotesque. Uh, they're both, they're both like 
they're both kind of perverts. Yeah. <laughs> Their humor is very perverted. It's like locker room humor. Mm-hmm. Um, and immature humor, I love. I mean, I love good locker room humor. I mean, oh, sure. you know, like Garth Ennis is one of my favorite writers. Uh, and that's all potty dick and fart jokes. <clears throat> and so you get that a lot in here. Like at one point they use the word, he uses the word quim in here. Like mm-hmm. he, he's, he's in, he's in uh, so Jay, I believe it's the uh, second uh, issue. Uh, <laughs> and uh, second panel in. Yeah, second panel in. You remember that one, right? Um, and <laughs> so, yeah, he talks about like, oh, maybe he just wanted a little quim. And I'm like, did they really, did you really just have the word quim in here? I don't think I've ever seen the word quim in, I've never, first of all, I've never said that word so many times out loud until just now, uh, let alone reading it in a, uh, celebrated writer's work. I, I I do remember that word actually. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you know, uh, and the like you said, it's it's just it's dick and fart jokes. But the the thing that makes them kind of different is the fact that um, somehow you can tell it's it's in like not necessarily a parody of of that stereotype but um it's like you can you can kind of tell it comes from a from a uh and this might sound really horrible but it comes from a good place instead of like malice you know it's like it's supposed to be fun and lighthearted it's not supposed to be malicious in its in, in its intent. Does that make any sense? Yeah, yeah. I I, I think you're. I know. You're, I know what you're saying. It, it's it. It's not. I, I don't want to say. I don't think he's being crass for the sake of being crass. Uh, right. The way that about ten years ago, when when they were doing like the, all those books on like game theory and like the mystery method, where it's just a bunch of like cocksure guys being kind of gross to be gross. Uh, it is, I think he, he, I think Sting, uh, Sting, <laughs> Sting is also in this book as, as well. <laughs> yeah, um, uh, I think King suffers in some areas of his personality from a stunted adolescence where, you know, he grew up with a single mom uh, who was working and, you know, he liked, he, he would read creepy comics and, um, you know, uh, was a boy in that time. And so I think it's just, I think he thinks he's you, speaking in these jokes because that's the way he believes that, that men bond with each other or that couples talk to each other. It's a, yeah, yeah. And in some ways I, they do. In some ways they do. But what it does too, I think what it makes reading both Joe Hill and Stephen King fun as a young reader <coughs> is you feel like you're getting away with something. You feel like you're reading something a little bit naughty. You know, I believe there is that scene in It (coughs) that I've heard about, but I haven't read this scene, is in the book, there's, and I hope I'm getting this correct, it's a very, the way it's described, I I, want to go in and see if I can just find this passage online. But there's a passage where the, uh, the gang of boys, and there's that girl in the gang, as a bonding exercise, they all like, kind of molest the girl uh, as a way to kind of like bond themselves, you know, where, you know, the girl is their friend, but it, it, 
you reading it now, you're like, this is kind of rape, kind of borderline <laughs> rape. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and, but you're like, and again, it's not because he had ill will or because he wanted to like villainize these characters. Those are the heroes of our story. I think King, as we talked about in our uh, uh, previous episodes, he's really good about making his protagonists unlikable in periods throughout the story. Um, I think in this story, Joe Hill, and I think in Joe Hill in general, is pretty good about, is not as, doesn't go as far with his characters. Like if you think about Lock and Key, you think about Bodhi and Lock and Key, his characters, his protagonists are pretty true to their heroic nature and they might do something out of character, but there's nothing in there that grates against you. Now, I think that, Joe Hill, as he goes on, maybe he'll start to evolve into that. But Stephen King, from a very early age, wasn't afraid to make his characters unlikable. And that's something you don't really see in in young writers uh, as much because they're in love with their protagonists. Yeah, that's an interesting point. Yeah, I, I think that a lot of times he will write these characters because... The, the way he does because he thinks well that's what this character would say and i don't i don't even think stephen king would would necessarily <clears throat> be friends with a lot of the characters that he writes does that make any sense yeah like, i don't even you know i think he writes them this way because he feels that this is the character and this is what would come out of this character's mouth mm-hmm. as it was made up by him mm-hmm. you know does he like this character necessarily doesn't seem so sometimes but you know it's and so i think that comes off in in sometimes in some of the the dialogue in my opinion yeah yeah what about this um can you think so here we have this really strong female protagonist um who uh is very resourceful throughout this entire book i mean at one point she cuts off her own thumb to escape some handcuffs you know and then she injects adrenaline and antibiotics into her own hand at the police station like very resourceful strong woman who makes a choice at the end the moral choice to well argue the morality of the choice but she makes a choice to um kill the man she loves because of his uh transgression on this other young girl's life um and mm-hmm. so can you Think of any strong, off top of your head, Stephen King female protagonist? Um, maybe Carrie? Carrie, yeah. Um, yeah, Carrie's a good one. Just off the top of my head. It's harder, isn't it? Yeah. It's harder. Uh, Joe Hill... Uh, you know, I'm trying to think, you know, there's a strong female character in uh, Lock and Key. Um, yeah. Born, not so much in Nosferatu that I can remember. Um, I never read Heart Shape Box. There uh, kind of is in Heart Shape Box. Yeah. So he, you know, I think that is uh, a passing of the guard. I think, you know, more of those mid-century writers are, are less likely. I think that Stephen King is more hyper-masculine than his son in his writing. Is, I, guess, I guess that's what I'm getting at. And do you, do you product, feel that as well? Product of his time. Yeah. Product you, of his time. Yeah. I, yeah. Yeah, I do. 
Yeah. I'm surprised King maybe has, again, we're not experts on King. We haven't read his, his whole, uh, uh, thing on here. I, I wonder if there are more, um, recent stories that King has wrote where he's trying to incorporate stronger female protagonists or if it's like you can't teach an, an old dog new tricks and he's like, no, I, this is... Because we, we talked about before, his heroes tend to be teachers or writers. You know, he mm-hmm. tends to put himself into the protagonist and I don't see Joe Hill doing that as much. Where it's like all his it, all his characters aren't just writers. <laughs> Yeah, I guess, I mean, I never read The Shining, but um, uh, was it was it Shelley Duvall's Shelley, character? Shelley Long? Shelley, oh, Shelley. Was it Shelley Duvall or Shelley? Uh, no, it wasn't Shelley Long. Uh, Shelley Duvall, I guess. Maybe, Ugh. I don't know. I, she, I heard that, that set right. was horrible for her. Like, I heard, if, she, if, that's a, if you're going to say it's a strong female protagonist, they treated Kubrick and Nicholson treated her like shit on that set. Bastards. Yeah. So, but I mean, in the movie, I guess she kind of was. No, yeah, she's a strong female protagonist. She protects her son in that one. She she yeah. has she has agency in that. Hmm. So, uh, yes, it was Shelley Duvall. <laughs> yeah, good. That Shelley Long would have been an entire, entirely different story. <laughs> Shelley Long. What am I thinking about Shelley Long? Cheers. Oh, okay. She's, she's Diane. Diane. Cheers. You know what? <laughs> you say entirely different movie. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, uh, True Beverly Hills. Um, (laughs) Classics like that. So, you know, we're talking about dialogue. One of the things that I noticed rereading Basketful of Heads was the way... uh, So, in a lot of comics... And see, I remember I told you from last time when we were recording before we were doing the uh, before we started the Stephen King set. I was telling you I wanted to. I was looking forward to rereading this to in a collected form because I knew something was going to jump out at me. So there was going to be some something I noticed that was different. And one of the things I noticed that was different was how well Joe Hill. Uh, uh, introduces us to his characters through their own dialogue like how we get to know each character has such a specific way of speaking mm. and and differentiates them through their manner of, of speech like what mm-hmm. they say how they say it you know and and it he makes it a, i can almost see like you know he outlines all of these characters and and just writes their dialogue based on who he knows they are. And I think a lot of comic book writers and I'm kind of, you know, a lot of people may really disagree with me, but one of the things that jumps out at me is Robert Kirkman's, especially walking dead, how those characters dialogue isn't all that different. Mm -hmm. You know, there's not a lot of differences in those characters just, but in this it's, it's, it's they're, they're they're just you can tell each character is fleshed out better. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did you notice that no, at all? I, you... I, I guess I didn't notice that specifically, but I you mentioned it and it, it does ring true to me. Uh, in that you know that is one of the things that comic books suffer from, and now comic book movies suffer from that. It's like it's everything is quippy, uh, no matter who it is. Yeah. Um, 
And here, you're right. Uh, one of the things that's, that's nice about this book is this this world feels very lived in for only a few issues in this limited yes, series. Uh, but there's not a heck of a lot of characters in here. Mm. Maybe a dozen. And maybe about six or seven of them are your the ones you see multiple times. And there might be a dozen characters. Uh, but because there's a storm coming in and because it's late at night and people are hidden from the storm... We really only encounter the the people we need to encounter. And now there are some characters that get introduced um, in the backstory, like the maid and the uh, uh, the the uh, woman who takes her own life and the, the daughters of that one guy. Um, but <laughs> for the most part, it's about a dozen characters, uh, which is smart because uh, yeah. then you can really work on, I need 12 distinct voices in this. Right. Let's do a voice count. As opposed to if you're writing the Avengers and 25 Avengers show up in one issue, I mean, or yeah, like much, the, the Walking Dead. I mean, come on. I mean, at some points in that series, if they're in, you know, um, one of their communities, you might have one comic book that has 40 different characters speaking in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, I'm not saying that that is the reason that this works for Joe Hill. I think it's because he's got a talent and an ear for dialogue. And like you said, sure. he specifically probably not outlines the story, but outlines the characters. Uh, and they feel really strong. It would have been easy for all these heads to sound the same. Right. Exactly. Just exactly. like bitter, venomous assholes. Mm-hmm. And now they are bitter, venomous assholes, but they're each that in their own way. Yeah, yeah, and they're not without their unique sense of humor. Mm-hmm. Is what's is what's the best. And and but like I'm even talking about like the sheriff, like the town sheriff, and and his wife. And there's just like you know you said the whole story the, the seems lived in. It's like. That with the sheriff and his wife and their their like small town hospitality, you're like, I know that guy. Mm-hmm. You know, I yeah. know her. You know, there, there's just something so familiar about some of these characters. Well, I think that's what he shares in common with his dad, right? I mean, we talked about yeah. this before with with King on in in this series is his ability to write small towns, small communities really well, uh, yeah. and. Uh, I think that I think that shines in his son. I don't know if he he gives him the secret sauce or you know when you grow up at the knee <laughs> when you grow up the, at the knee of your your father. I mean, I, I told you I think on writing is one of the greatest books about writing. Is you know there's only so much you can really explain to someone about writing. Writing is all about just doing it and then figuring it out on your own what works for you. And then you have these epiphanies of like, oh, I think that's what all those guys were talking about, you know, um, and so. If I, you know, if that for me is the the best book on uh, on creative writing, imagine that being there at the horse's mouth all the time, getting oh, those yeah. getting those pearls about like what does it mean to create a community of characters uh, as opposed to populating a story with characters? Because I think he creates a community; he doesn't just populate, right? Oh, I need yeah. a, some people are like, oh, I need a guy here to give me this exposition on this thing. And so whatever, like this guy shows up and whatever, we're just going to call him the fireman. No, but like King and Hill will make that not just the fireman, but like the also he's the fireman, but he's also the town knucklehead. Yeah. Uh, or yeah. this is the uh, paper boy, but he's also the the town 
mischief maker. Uh, and so they don't really, he, they, they use stereotypes to a certain degree, but they don't stereotype their characters. Their characters are always more than mm-hmm. one dimension, and that comes out in their dialogue more than anything else. Than just Definitely. than just telling you, oh, this is the creepy old guy who owns the antique shop, you know. Right. It's some. It's it's it's. There's always some level of depth to it. Yeah. 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 And that's just that's it makes these stories so much more enjoyable to read. What do you think yeah. about uh, the pacing of a story like Basketful of Heads compared to some of the other Stephen King stories that we've read, like? The Mist, take for example, because in, in some ways, uh, The Mist, uh, which we read, we talked about last week, uh, yes, The I Mist remember. is, uh, um, you know, it, it traps the characters in there. It traps a small amount of characters into a lo- location. So it this shares that similar idea of like, let's trap our characters. Same with The Shining, right? Um, so taking taking a community of characters and then making that community even smaller and then telling the story who paces better. Ooh, that's a good question. Uh, I, I almost want to say Joe Hill does. And, and that's just based off of the few things I've read, mind you. But sometimes I think Stephen King has the tendency to to flesh out a little too much. Like sometimes, you know, you sit there and go, "Okay, you know, uh, it, you know, it, uh, I know I've used this analogy before, but I'm not going to do it again." The Wonder Boys. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm not going to do that again. But sometimes I feel like Stephen King. There's there's a little bit too much dug out on some of these characters um, as, as opposed to Joe Hill's pacing. Oh, by the way, the dugout would be the great, uh, a great scene for a Stephen King short story, like taking place in a dugout of an old timey (laughs) baseball diamond. Right. Yeah. It's called the dugout. (laughs) Um, Yeah. And there's a puddle of black ooze in the corner that slowly like, yeah. Yeah. And people thought it was just uh, a tobacco spit for a long time. It's tobacco, 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 tobacco. <laughs> from just from, that's been accumulating there for decades, you know, for yeah. all the baseball players. That um, is, we're not far off from the Stephen King story right there, buddy. <laughs> it practically writes itself. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm a little bit more of a fan of Joe Hill's pacing. Yeah. Personally. I think, so... When, when Stephen King, when he talks about his writing, he talks about how he very rarely plots. Um, hmm. He has this great analogy that I, um, I share with my kids because it's one of the best metaphors um, for writing that I, that I think is, rings true once you reach a certain point in writing. It, it's, it's weird. Like You write and you write crap and stuff like that, but then at some point, the writing becomes easier. On and storytelling evolves, right? So Stephen King's not about building a story. The analogy he uses, he, he goes, think of the story is already whole. The story is already there. It's your job as a writer. He goes, it's like a fossil in the ground. It's your job as a writer to remove that fossil, keeping as much of it intact as you can. 
And he says, mm-hmm. we've got a lot of tools to do this. And he says, plot is one of them, but it shouldn't be your main one. He goes, plot would be like trying to dig up a fossil with just a jackhammer. You can do it. It's a big tool. You can do it, but you're probably going to break more stuff than you actually pull out whole, if that metaphor makes sense. Oh, Meaning yeah. that some writers are so plot-focused that they, they outline it, here's the beats, here the, here's the beats, and then they write to it. They don't use any of the nuance, the language, the details, the description, all these smaller tools, the chisel, yeah. the brush, all you know, the, the, the toothbrush, the toothpick, to really get in there. So King, he, he talks about how he, he says he's probably plotted about four stories where, like, it was plot-driven, and they're not his favorite stories. Um, That's really and, interesting. Yeah. He talks about writing misery uh, and just the idea of it's a concept, and his original concept uh, that he had kind of ended in a different way. But then when he started writing the character, he realized that, I think it's Anne, I forgot, or maybe not, um, the main, uh, the female villain in that. Um, Kathy Bates, I don't know. Kathy Bates, yeah, <laughs> character in the, in the film. That she was more complex than he had originally intended to get to that ending that he had kind of plotted out. So as he was writing Misery the story took on a very different um, tone. Interesting. Interesting. I I can totally see that. I can totally see that Um, because the, the, his language and the way he puts things, it's just, it paints such a unique picture and such a crisp picture, you know, uh, of, of these of the things that he's writing about more so than a, a lot of contemporary authors mm-hmm. you know who are who are like plot driven so that, but that jo- explains i think a lot. i think i think i think joe hill needs to be more plot driven uh because he tends to put more mystery into his stories than king does they tend to be if we're looking at percentage of genres within their stories joe hill has more mystery think about lock and key like that uh-huh. whole was like 40 issues or something like that. It's all about what is the mystery of this Hill House? Unsolving this mystery. The kids are trying to solve a mystery. You know, there's fantasy and there's horror in- involved in there, which is very Stephen King. But mm-hmm. there's a ton of mystery. And even in this book, The Basket Full of Heads, there's a mystery that June has to solve throughout this night. Yeah. What's the deal? What happened that summer? How is her boyfriend involved? And that mystery actually is one of the propelling forces that makes this story so good. Yeah. You, you don't get that as much. Like maybe like in a silver bullet novella, you're like, well, who is the werewolf? But Stephen King is usually pretty good about dropping that in. It's like on well, the film version of it. It's, oh, we see the priest with the eye patch mystery solved. Yeah. You know, uh, yeah. Type thing. So I think Stephen King is more about like, um, giving you those great reveals in a really creative way, but you lose the mystery. And Joe Hill is very much about building to that ultimate climactic ending of a mystery. I would say, I would say maybe even this, I would say this, and I'm going to make a bold statement here. They're both horror, but Stephen King is horror thriller. Joe Hill is more horror mystery. Yeah. I can easily see it. I can, I can totally agree with that. 
Also, I, I think Stephen King also focuses a lot on uh, moving the, the kind of like moving the plot through the character's eyes, you know, through the character's perspective and, you know, how the characters deal with it, how the, you know, the it's surprise. It's more yeah, intimate. It. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. But I mean, and I'm, uh, I love them both. So I'm changing my answer. From our oh, cold open. Oh. I want to be Stephen King's son. <laughs> it really is hard to think of it. Like, Maybe uh, like, like a, a better one. Dean Koontz's son? <laughs> no, no, no. And you, um, I love the beat poets, but I hate to be one of their sons. Oh, Kerouac's son? Fucking forget Are it. you kidding me? Yeah, yeah. No oh, my God. What an asshole. Um, <laughs> Ginsburg's son? That flighty, dighty, hippie dude? <laughs> no, not Alan Ginsburg. No. No, um, Michael Crichton, but like it's so formulaic. What about um, uh, Michael Chabon, mm. Wonder Boys? Uh, yeah, Yiddish Policeman's Union. Um, oh, you know who'd be great? Ray Bradbury's kid. Probably. You get to play like he's he has like Ray Bradbury's obviously had like dinosaurs and like he was big into science fiction Martians, and fantasy and yeah. burrow, you know, like, uh, or uh, carnival. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Ray Bradbury's son. That would be good. That would be a good one. Oh man. Ray Bradbury should have had a son. He might've had a son, but that, that they should have carried on that legacy. God, I miss, I mean, I mean, there's, I haven't even read all of Bradbury stuff, but like, I don't think I've ever read a Bra- a bad Bradbury. No, no. A bad Barry. A bad Barry. Yeah. <laughs> This is a uh, horrible story. It's a bad bearer. <laughs> about uh, like Tom Clancy? No. <laughs> Boring as shit. Yeah. Yeah, my mom would love it. My, lo- my, mom, my mom would love being married to him. Because <laughs> she loves Tom Clancy books. Yeah, Harlan can... Co- she would, I, she'd love it if I was Harlan Cobain's kid. <laughs> oh, uh, Louis L'Amour. What, Louis L'Amour? Yeah. Louis L'Amour. Oh, who is... Um, who am I thinking of um, that, uh, oh, God, why is it I come to my head that um, Jackie Brown was an adaption of Elmore Leonard? Oh, I don't really know much of it, many uh, Elmore Leonard he's stories. Real, he's a real pulpy, pulpy guy. Uh, yeah, you'd have, a lot of, you'd have a lot of women issues, I feel mm. like. <laughs> I feel like a Stephen King's son, you'd have a lot of women issues, too. I'm surprised that that doesn't come through in, in this. I don't know. In, Stephen King. Uh, oh, good lord! I was going to say. So you mean how the woman issues don't trickle down to Joe Hill? Yeah, and I think I was just talking. I I, I don't necessarily believe that because now that I think about it, all the Stephen King interviews that I watched, he is a quite a polite guy. You know, he's been married to his current wife for a long time. Um, you know, as I said earlier in this podcast, he was raised by a single mother um, in a time where there was ultra masculinity. So I'm sure some of that's baked into him as a person, but it doesn't define him as a person. Um, mm-hmm. And there are plenty of writers of his generation that are much worse than that. And I, I, I do, I'm reading a bunch of them right now with this. I told Jay, I was, I was reading a bunch of old pulp novels from like the 1950s. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm reading one right now called season of love. And it's, I don't want to say deliciously masculine, because <laughs> I don't know if you could say that in 2021, but it does feel like, like I talked earlier about, you know, you feel like you're getting away with something, reading a Stephen King book as a kid, 
you kind of feel like you're getting away with something reading these old 1950s pulp novels as an adult oh. in 2021. You're like, ooh, I hope no one sees me reading this. <laughs> and then he smacked her right in her mouth. And I'm like, oh, my goodness. Oh, yeah. Same thing. I was watching uh, a Streetcar Named Desire with Marlon Brando. Same thing. I'm look, I'm sitting there going, oh, it's just a matter of time before this gets canceled. What we have here <laughs> is something called the Napoleonic Code. And what, uh, hold on. This, we have, it's called the Napoleonic Code, and it says, whatever is the wife's is there for the husband's. And this is it. Hey, Blanche, with these <laughs> jewels? Huh? How'd you pay for these jewels? Get out of here, Blanche. <laughs> Oh yeah, man! It's, Stanley uh, Kowalski, man. Mm-hmm. Great character. Mm-hmm. Oh, Tennessee Williams in general. Tennessee Williams in general, man. Yeah, yeah. Some, you know, I look at some of these things and I'm like, oh gosh, how? It's just a matter of time. It, oh, it's I don't go on the way it's going. All of it's gonna get shut down. Yeah, and I, it's such a. It's well, let's not get into it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I should stop. <laughs> yeah, no, I want to have this conversation with you, but I want, we're going to have it off air sometime. Um, uh, the Bonsai Bros, no Moe's. What? Yeah. You're canceled. The Bonsai Bros, no Moe's. Where'd they go? <laughs> Why did we come up with that? <laughs> so, yeah, it, it's um, as we're kind of uh, uh, wrapping things up here. So what's your takeaway from, I mean, we didn't talk a lot about the, the, the actual story of this, right? Because that, that wasn't really our quest in reading Basketful, rereading Basketful of Heads. It was really looking for the parallels between uh, uh, someone who writes in the same vein as Stephen King. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think for me, the takeaway was, is you see Joe Hill crib from his father and the stuff he cribs is so good it's so essential and it's so king it's it's stuff that has appeared in tropes and and ideas that appeared in other people's story stories you know uh as writers from time to time but not as consistently as they do in king stories so they become really a product of king himself uh something that he has given to the writer's landscape Right, and as we've talked about so far, as we're ending the story portion of our uh, Stephen King set, is this small community, right? Uh, and well, I'm actually going to stop there because it sounds like I'm trying to wrap up Stephen King in general, and we'll save that for the okay. the next podcast when we the takeaway from Stephen King. But what's the takeaway from Joe Hill for you? Um. I I feel like Joe Hill uses a lot a lot well for, again this is just my limited take on it but as far as I can tell maybe I'm hitting that bullseye or not I don't know but I feel like there's there's some parts in in basketball heads that made me laugh out loud um and I feel like like there's just some more humor in it Instead of like just you know Stephen King sometimes just like slapsticky type humor, but there's some parts in in Lock and Key also, and and this that made me laugh out loud. I mean, there was like that part where I, I don't remember the exact dialogue, but when when uh, the, uh, uh, the, the the head was talking to June and, and he he was saying, 
hey, you know, you're not that bad a person. You could have left me at the bottom of the ocean. And then the next panel you see is this head at the bottom of the ocean with like a crab holding its mm-hmm. his nose, you know, and it, it was pretty funny. Or much like you said, uh, I believe you said that Stephen King coined the phrase um, pie hole. Yeah. I think uh, I think Joe Hill has coined the phrase Quim. crotch goblin. Oh, sorry. <laughs> What'd you say, Quim? Close. Quim goblin. Crotch, crotch goblin. <laughs> that yeah. was a new take on illegitimate child that I've heard. You never heard crotch goblin before? <laughs> no. Oh, I've heard it before. Oh, yeah. yeah. We said growing up, yeah. There's a little crotch <laughs> goblin over here. And that feels very Stephen King. He might have taken that. Stephen, that might be a Stephen King thing. Could have been. I'm going to look been. that up on, on here. I'm going to look up Crotch Goblin. Ooh, interesting pictures. Uh, no. Um, uh, oh, I do. I did want to mention something to you. Uh, I remember this from the first read. Uh, Crotch Rocket. Um, is I'm in love with June. Like the way I'm in love with June now, the way six-year-old me was in love with Jessica Rabbit. Like I know, okay. I know it's ridiculous. I know it's it's fantasy. I know this is a female character written by a a, a male, but yeah, I want to marry June. See, I thought you were going to say the same way. Uh, adolescent you was in love with uh, Ripley from Aliens, or yeah. Sarah Connor from Terminator. Well, that you puts know. her more in the action vein. That's that's probably yeah. more uh, the the character of it. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm absolutely i can see but like that. the adult me like how old do you think let's 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 try to work this out jay all right what would i need to do if june was a real character what what do i need to change about myself to get with june <laughs> i mean but when i say get with her i mean in the most respectful way i mean like court her buy her uh 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 uh, uh sweet smelling uh bath salts and uh, <laughs> uh so you, you figure like a simpleton well, she comes in. She comes in strong <laughs> in this beginning. She's talking about blowing people uh, to get, uh, you know, get blowing him to get out of a ticket, and then blowing anyone to mm-hmm. him to get anyone out of a ticket. So I love that. I love that she's not afraid to get a little bit, uh, you know, a little raw from time to time. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, and I like that. I like how she's a really strong character. I like how she has a sense of humor. Uh, uh, who's the artist on this? Um, Leo Max. Leo Max draws a fantastically. She got the freckles, dude. She got a little yeah. freckles on here. A little real California vibe to it. What do I gotta do, Jay? What do I gotta do? Well, you think about the the guy that that uh, she did like. A little right? ginger. She was madly a little loved. crotch goblin. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Yeah. Cop. You know. Uh, okay. So we're 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 already we're already. There's a type here that it's gonna be hard for me to. To, it might be tough. She's not, There's going to be some she, major lifestyle changes. Hey, hey, wait, wait a minute. You're telling me that she's not into like nebbish uh, young uh, intellectuals? <laughs> wait, man, I feel hurt. I feel, I feel ashamed. <laughs> is, is it too late? Is it like, it's not even late there, is it? No, I just had two beers. Oh. <laughs> um so yeah man yeah there's gonna be some uh i think i can i think dr- dr- I, okay so uh, this guy's fit so i obviously have to get a little bit more fit um 
He seems tall too, which could be a, a that's something I can't change. I don't know. You got tall? I didn't get, I didn't catch that he was necessarily tall, tall. per se. He doesn't uh he likes ska and she doesn't like ska. I'm okay yeah. with ska. I, I like some ska, but I can give up ska for her, Jay. I'll give up ska for her. Like I would I don't like to lie to people, but if she was like, Oh, I hate ska, I would utter the phrase, I hate I absolutely hate ska too. Now, that would be a lie, and I wouldn't feel proud about it, but it'd be something I'd be willing to do. And then I'd learn to hate Ska because of it. I'd, I would then, because I like her so much, I would force myself to hate Ska. That's that's very nice. Kick your, secretly kick your less than Jake CDs under the couch. Yeah, losing oh. streak, gone. Snap it in half. <laughs> now, that is, I think that might be the most, that's my love language, music. And mm-hmm. uh, that's what I would give up. It'd be a major sacrifice f- for me, you know? No more mustard plug. It's gone. Mm-hmm. Out. I, th- I think that would... Saves bad. Ferris? Uh-uh. Gets rid of Ferris. <laughs> uh, yeah, man. I think there's going to be some changes. There's got to be some changes. I think there's going to be a June song on our Stephen King podcast. Mm. Ode to June. I am just thinking about that right now. And that is got a little assignment that I'm assigning myself. You can tune in next next episode to hear our full Stephen King playlist in time for Halloween. So if you like to listen to, you know, like uh, songs to get you in the vibe, I'm sure there's going to be plenty of creepy. Oh, yeah. Dark, eccentric songs on the Stephen King playlist. But in that mix, there'll be a song for June. June, this one goes out to you. And it's not going to be the police song from this book. (laughs) (laughs) Don't you know you can turn this murder into art? Um, So, yeah. uh, Join us next episode for our our final episode in our Stephen King set. We're going to, Jay is going to be picking seven songs. I'm going to be picking seven songs. Is there a an eighth song that we need to uh, collaborate on and and decide, like, hey, you pick one of these and I pick one of these, Jay? I want to collaborate with you on the June Ode to June. Ode to June. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Ode to June. I, I, I want to select You want in on this? Okay. Yeah, I do. Okay. Are you sure you don't want to do one on uh, uh, Shelly Long? <laughs> Ode to Diane from Cheers. Yeah, I, I think... I think I think we're going to have to fight for her. I think she's going to have to choose the better man. Oh, I see how this is. I think that's how Th- it's going to go. This is my mistake for talking her up so much. <laughs> I turned an apple into an apple pie in your eye, and now... <laughs> now, okay. Well, sir, I yeah. see that. Well, you got tall on me. You got tall <laughs> on me. But I'll tell you this, Jay. The reason we have to get off this podcast is I'm going to get a haircut. And I'm going to bring this comic book in. I'm going to open the page to June, and I'm going to say, give me the haircut that's going to get me this girl. Oh. And I'm going to read him. I'm going to read to my barber the entire comic so he gets a real <laughs> sense of, of what I'm talking about. As he's cutting your hair. <laughs> yeah. And then I'm going to say, do you think she'll like this? <laughs> and now I've just creeped myself out. All right, ladies and gentlemen, that was the basket full of heads. What is next on the horizon? What is next? On the next pop wave! Banzai!